Okay, today's scripture is Mark 15, verses 6 through 7, 12 through 15, 22 through 25, and 42. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them, anyone for whom they asked. Now a name called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them, and after flogging Jesus, handed him over to be crucified. Then they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes among them, casting laws to decide what each should take. This all happened on Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You did good, Katie. You did good. Well done. How's everybody's week been? Good week? Tough week? I kind of had a gamut of emotions this past week. It's been uh, great at times and terrible at times. And uh, probably some of y'all have had similar experiences. Uh, Started the week with a two-day meeting. There's nothing like starting a week with two full days of meeting in Lubbock. And uh, I'm the chair of the Board of Ordained Ministry for the annual conference. And so uh, we are tasked with uh, the responsibility of helping those who are called to ministry, helping them in that journey. And so we have four people that we are, will be ordaining as pastors uh, at annual conference this year. So that was fun, but it was, it's still a long, tough meeting as we do interviews and all that. So for them that we got to ordain. Uh, and then on Tuesday, I got to spend six hours uh, do, uh, going to and from Memphis, Texas, as I'm working with that church, and a team of us are working with that church, a small Methodist church, helping them to discern what's next for them as they uh, try to minister faithfully in that community. And so we have a lot of small churches, you know, trying to discern where God is calling them. And so uh, it's fun to be able to work with those churches and help them. And then Friday, I was back in Lubbock again for an all-day meeting for a vocational discernment retreat which is fancy words that just mean we're trying to help those who feel called to ministry, help them to discern where is God calling them in vocational ministry? How is God leading them in, uh, to, to where, what their next step is? And so we just help them through that process. So I've been uh, reflecting on that all week. You know, I got to uh, see both sides of this journey of faith with people as they're as, and we had 12 people at that vocational discernment retreat, uh, all ages, a junior in Canyon High to uh, probably someone in their 60s, second career, several second careers. They're looking at becoming ministers in the Methodist church. And so what a joy to hear their stories and their callings. And all of their callings are different, but it's fun to see where God moves and to be reminded again that God still calls us, right? And he's calling even now. And so I'm wondering in this room if there's someone who is called and if God is going to speak to you today. I'll just let that linger and let the Spirit uh, convict you otherwise. But as we come today, um, as we're looking at Friday, 
It's hard for me to fathom how Jesus can come into Jerusalem on Sunday, Palm Sunday. Actually, today is Palm Sunday. Uh, And we celebrated that. We reminded ourselves as we started this season of Lent, how Jesus can come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and people shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, And people are waving the palm branches and throwing their cloaks on the ground. And he's coming in as a king and he's being praised. How can that happen on Sunday and then on Friday, they're shouting, crucify him. It's hard for me to fathom that. It's hard for me to understand that, that they go from celebration to sorrow. How, why would God allow this to happen? And I, and I find myself asking that question often in life. Why, God, why would you allow this to happen? When I'm at a funeral of a child, when... I see someone with a bright future, someone called into ministry, young, and they're killed in a car wreck. And we spend a year in a pandemic. Why, God, why? When a a friend stumbles and falls and, and ruins their life, it's tough for me to answer that question. And why, God, would you allow that to happen? And you know, as a pastor, I can even... I even know the right answer of why, you know, and I can, I can give you big theological words and reasons and, and talk about original sin and the fall of man at the, in the beginning and, and how all of those consequences have consequences for each of us when we have free will and God's grace for us. But, you know, when you're in the midst of that pain, when you're in the midst of that suffering and that chaos, oftentimes theological words and answers don't really help. Uh, in fact, sometimes I don't even want to hear that from people when I'm in the midst of it. Have you ever been there when you're just struggling right in the midst of life and it doesn't make sense and it doesn't help? But for me, I always, uh, I tend to turn to the scriptures when I'm feeling that, when I'm struggling with life, when I'm struggling to try to make sense of life. And, and I often turn to the Psalms and, and pray the Psalms. And, and I love the Psalms. Uh, because they had the same struggles. They had the same questions, the same uh, frustrations. And, and I love Psalm 22, and it starts out, you see it on the screen. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. King David wrote that psalm. It's actually kind of one of my favorites because it's one of those psalms that helps me when I'm in that time of grief or pain. And I find comfort that even King David, a man after God's own heart, prayed these words, felt these things at time, at times. And, and I find comfort in knowing that on the cross, Jesus cried these same words from the cross. So, the great thing about this psalm is it's, it's not the end of the story. There's more to the story, and we have to read continually, and we'll go on here in a moment. So this morning, I want us to, to, to go back in time to that Good Friday and uh, the day Jesus was crucified. And, and you know, uh, I've, I've always wondered why do they call it Good Friday, and, and the main reason why it's called Good Friday is because it's it, that word good, you know, we have a certain idea of the definition of good, but but good, when, when they were originally, when the early church called it Good Friday, they were reflecting on that 
uh, idea of good that means holy. That uh, this definition of good that's being used here is, is holy. So we could call it Holy Friday. So here we are as we go back in time on Holy Friday. For the Holy One of God is on display for all to see. And we get to peek into the King of Kings and, and the Lord of Lords and, and, and what that kingship really means for us. We've been asking that question throughout this series as well. And you'll remember that the night before Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples and that after the Passover, they took that short little trip uh, to the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, they're in the garden and we really get to see the fully human side of Jesus as he's in the garden. We get to see kind of his agony uh, and what the church has called his passion on full display as he, he begs God for relief from what's about to happen. He begs God that, that this cup would be taken from him. And although the disciples are with him, you know, they're all gathered around. You remember the story? They're tired. They've been up late. They're sleepy. And, and they begin to fall asleep. And, and Jesus asks his friends, he says, will you, will you just pray with me? Will you spend some time with me in prayer? And, and they really kind of fail him. Uh, and have you ever been there before? Where you just, you had people around you, but you just felt alone. You felt all alone. This is really what Jesus is experiencing here in the garden as he starts the longest night of his life. And Jesus, though, as he's praying, he's resolved to do the Father's will. And he says, you know, he says, Father, take this cup from me, but, but not my will, but your will be done. And so he resolves to do the will of God. And under the cover of darkness, though, we see that a crowd begins to come and gather and they're, they're carrying swords and clubs and, and lights and they're being led by one of the 12, Judas. And Judas comes up to Jesus and kisses him and says, Rabbi. And of course, Jesus knows that Judas has betrayed him. And he says, Judas, you betray me with a kiss. Those are the toughest betrayals, aren't they? Those that are the closest to you. Those who turn on you. And so, again, Jesus is taken into custody and they're taken to uh, the chief priests and the religious leaders into uh, the high priest's house and they begin to question him and they begin to mock him and they spit on him and they're out for blood. And it's, and it's so ironic to me that here the religious leaders, the ones who are, are, should be the most holy, are the ones seeking a way to have Jesus killed. You know, it just really doesn't make sense to me. It's a struggle. These, these religious leaders, they're threatened by Jesus and his message. Uh, in John's gospel, this is so mind-blowing. When do the religious leaders decide that they want Jesus killed? It's after he raises Lazarus from the dead. Just, isn't that crazy? I just can't even fathom that. But, but they're so taken aback by who Jesus is and, and what his kingdom is going to look like, and it's so different from what they thought. And so right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, they say, hey, we got to, we got to get rid of this guy. Jesus comes to give life, and all they want is his death. And this isn't a crowd of thugs either that's questioning Jesus, right? Again, this is the religious leaders. These are the, the pastors, the, the, the priests. This is the, 
this is the chair of United Methodist Women, if it were today, or the chair of the administrative board or trustees or finance committee. You know, these are the leaders of the church that want him dead. <coughs> and so here we have this long night where Jesus is taken into custody, and then he's finally taken to uh, the Roman governor Pilate's uh, palace, and they're trying to get Jesus killed. Excuse me. getting over, over a cold. Forgive me. This is one of those really crazy moments in the Gospels. As Jesus is here, kind of in between Pilate and these religious leaders. And uh, these religious leaders have, have brought Jesus to Pilate because they want Pilate to do something about Jesus. They want Pilate to take care of Jesus. And ultimately, they want Pilate to kill Jesus and here's, here's the thing, you know, they don't really want blood on their hands. They want someone else to take care of their problem. You ever been there before where someone dumps their problems on you and say, we want you do it. It's my problem, but I, I want you to take care of it. And I want you to suffer the consequences of it. And, and here's basically what they tell Pilate. Hey, Pilate, we need you to kill Jesus because our scripture says that we can't do it. How crazy is that? But that's basically what they say. And, and I'm sure Pilate's quite annoyed because he really knows that these religious leaders, they're just jealous. They don't like this man, Jesus, that he's threatening their authority and their power. But, but Pilate, he's just annoyed. He's, he's a pretty shrewd politician. But these religious leaders are pretty shrewd as well because they know that they have to force Pilate to deal with this. And so the way that they're going to force Pilate to deal with this is they say, hey, Pilate, this guy claims to be king. Now Pilate has to do something about it. They know what buttons to push to make Pilate deal with it because anyone who claims kingship is a threat to Herod, the king, and ultimately to Caesar and the, and the power. And so it's a funny claim because it's actually a claim that Jesus never makes, but it's a claim that's true. And Pilate, he really does try all he can to release Jesus. He even goes so far to have him beaten and flogged, hoping that this will pacify these religious leaders. But as we know, it doesn't pacify them, and they, they want nothing less than Jesus' blood shed on a cross. Death isn't enough. They want humiliation. They want suffering. They want pain. That's what Jesus deserves. That's what they think. And so Pilate tries to pacify him again by saying, you know, at the Passover every year, it's my tradition to release a prisoner to you, anyone that you choose for me to release. And so Pilate looks across all of these people that are going to die on the cross. And this is what I think Pilate does. He chooses the worst one making sure that they'll choose the worst one, a, a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, uh, you could be killed for theft or for anything going against Rome, but Barabbas was a murderer, it says, and he caused chaos and insurrection. And so he brings Barabbas out and, and says, hey, which one would you like for me to release to you? The murderer who causes chaos and you don't want as a neighbor? Or Jesus, who's done nothing. And the religious leaders have gotten the crowd stirred up and they say, release to us 
Barabbas. And Pilate is beside himself saying, what? Why? What, what, what has Jesus done? He said, no, crucify him. You know, it's interesting that uh, Barabbas, the name, it means son of the father. And so the people choose this son of the father over the true son of the father. And Mark tells us, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas. How often have we done the same? How often have we betrayed Jesus and betrayed God or done something we knew wasn't right in order to satisfy the crowd? And I think that's one of the challenges we face today in our world is what are we going to do in this moment? Are we going to satisfy the crowd or are we going to follow after God and do his will? Who are we going to try and satisfy? And I wonder what great evil has happened in in our world because we try to satisfy the crowd instead of doing God's will. So Jesus is led away to be crucified. He's brought to a place called Golgotha. He's nailed to a cross alongside two other criminals. And all those who pass by can watch him die. And it's about nine in the morning, just a couple hours ago, when Jesus is crucified. That's when it happens. And the religious leaders are still, as he's hanging on the cross, they're still condemning him. They're still uh, berating him. They're still uh, chiding him as he's there hanging on the cross. And they shout out, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? Give us a sign, Jesus, that you're the Messiah. I kind of laugh at this moment. Honestly, I know it's a gruesome, terrible scene, but I just, it's just dripping with irony. Give us a sign, Jesus, that you're the Messiah. When did these religious leaders decide to crucify him? After he raised Lazarus from the dead, meaning they were there when he raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw him heal people. They saw him preach and teach. They saw him do all these things, and they're saying what? Give me a sign. How many times do we do the same thing to God? God, I just need a sign. Would you give me a sign? And, and what's even more ironic to me, this makes me laugh. There's actually a sign above his head. What does it say? This is Jesus, King of the Jews. It's actually written in three languages, just in case you don't read one of them. You can get the other one, right? So ironic. So funny. And how many of us are the same way? We're like, God, just give us a sign. We just need a sign. And God's like, what else do you want? And then it, again, I ask the question, why God? Why would you allow this to happen? It's it's really not fair. And that's the point. It's not. It isn't fair that God hung on a cross for your sins. It, it isn't fair that God hung on a cross for our sins. We should be the ones that are hanging on the cross. We are the ones who are guilty. We are the ones who called for Barabbas. And he took our sins and took our pain. And as he's hanging on the cross, the, the gospels record his final words. And so for the rest of this morning, we're gonna kind of go through those final words of Jesus as he's hanging from the cross. In Matthew and Mark, we hear these final words. It says it's about three o'clock. So from nine o'clock to three o'clock, 
he, uh, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's not only a plea for help, but, but as I said before, it's a direct quote from Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. Psalm 22, as we said, it's a cry for help to God, but it's, but it's also a Psalm of praise and a Psalm of hope. And you think to yourself, it starts out like that, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it goes on. In fact, I want to read part of Psalm 22 to you as, in fact, I would encourage you to take time this week and, and, and read through Psalm 22. Maybe make that your daily devotion every day over this, this week. It's an amazing Psalm. It was written by King David, but it's actually prophesying about Jesus. And so as we read, my God, my God, why have you left me all alone? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my anguished groans? Our ancestors trusted you, verse four. They trusted you and you rescued them. They cried out to you and they were saved. They trusted you and they weren't ashamed. But I am a worm, less than human, insulted by one person, despised by another. All who see me make fun of me. They gape, shaking their heads. He committed himself to the Lord, so let God rescue him. Because God likes him so much. Then it goes on, verse 14. Many bulls surround me. Many mighty bulls from Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths at me like a lion ripping and roaring. I'm poured out like water. All my bones have fallen apart, have been pulled out of joint. That's what happens when you're hanging on a cross. My heart is like wax. It melts inside of me. My strength is dried up like a piece of broken broken pottery. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You set me down in the dirt of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of evil, evil people surround me. I can count all my bones. They stare at me. They divide my garments among themselves. They cast lots for my clothes. But at the end, it says, deliver me, O God. Verse 23 and 24, all of you who revere the Lord, praise him. All of you who are Jacob's descendants, honor him. All of you who are Israel's offspring, stand in awe of him because he didn't despise or detest the suffering of the one who suffered. He didn't hide his face from me. No, he listened when I cried out to him for help. It's a great psalm. It's a great reminder that no matter where we are, God is still with us. And then in the Gospel of Luke, we also have these words recorded from Jesus. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He's speaking words of forgiveness to those who have actually put him on the cross. And he's speaking those same words of forgiveness to us today. What grace. And from these words, Luke also records this short interaction going on between the two thieves who's on either side of him being crucified. One of the thieves uh, taunts Jesus, makes fun of him. He says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal kind of chews him out saying, don't you fear God? Seeing that you also have been sentenced to die, we are rightly condemned for we're receiving the appropriate sentence for what we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he speaks to Jesus and he says, remember, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. 
an amazing moment of grace where this man who has done nothing right, who deserved to die, recognizes that he deserves to die, but this Jesus doesn't. It's given to one who doesn't deserve it. And that's the amazing thing about Jesus and the amazing message that we have and the reason that we gather is because of this grace that God has given to us. And there's so much more to the story than just an innocent man being killed. It is the story of God willing to die in our place for our sins, to show us forgiveness if we'll humble ourselves and accept that gift. And then also in Luke, we, we hear these final words from the lips of Jesus are, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And in Luke, it records that at that moment, the, tur- the curtain in the temple is ripped in two. And if you, d- you don't know, the, the Jewish temple there in Jerusalem, it's, it's a, a, a mighty sacred place. And, and that curtain was there to divide the Holy of Holies, the, the place where the presence of God was supposed to dwell in that Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And in the Jewish faith, there was this huge sacrificial system in which uh, the sacrifices were made to make atonement for our sins and the things we'd done wrong. And, and only once a year could the, the chief priests go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for our sins and to, to kind of bridge that gap between God and us. And here on the cross, the curtain is torn in two, basically saying there's now no more separation from God and man because God has made a way into the Holy of Holies. And now our sinfulness doesn't desecrate this holy space, but God's sacrifice for us has made us holy so we can dwell finally with God. It's an amazing, amazing moment. It's a dramatic symbol. And now the way to the Father isn't through the curtain. It's through Jesus Christ. That's that's one of those life-altering, universe-shattering moments right then as Luke records it. And then in the Gospel of John, we hear other words spoken by Jesus uh, from the cross. The first is, is a moment kind of of tender care between Jesus and his mother Mary. As, as Mary is there, we sometimes forget uh, the family is there as Jesus is being crucified. And next to Mary, it says it's one of his disciples. We think it was most likely John. And Jesus is concerned for her and for who's going to take care of Mary because most scholars believe that uh, Jesus' earthly father, Joseph, had died by this time and that Mary, you know, was alone. And so he speaks to them both saying, he says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here's your son. And then he said to the disciple, here's your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And so we see even from the cross, Jesus is taking care of his family. He's concerned about those around him the thief on the cross, his, his mother, his disciples, you and me, he's offering grace upon grace. And it's almost as if Jesus is at peace in this moment. And in a sense, he is because he has done the will of God. And then we hear Jesus cry out that he's thirsty. And, and these words are more than just a physical need, but, but they're, again, a fulfillment of Scripture and, and John records these words. After this, when Jesus knew that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I am thirsty. And a jar of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. 
And again, I return to the Psalm, Psalm 69, which says, they gave me poison for food and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to, to drink. So here, it's, it's not a cry of, of a physical need so much as a cry of, I have come to fulfill everything that God has promised and I will do it. I will fulfill it all. And I, and I love that even the symbolism and the imagery is as someone is putting a sponge and putting it on a hyssop branch and, and offering it up to Jesus, the, the, the wine, and, and in, in that in image of the Old Testament where it says, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. And then John records these final words from the cross. It is finished. It's finished. I have come to do the will of the Father. It is finished. I've completed it. Such great words. Jesus has finished what he's come to do. And this, this death looks like a, a defeat in human eyes. But, but there's more to the story, isn't there? And, and that's what I want to tell you today. You know, your, your week, Monday through today, it, it might have been tough. Monday to Friday was a tough week. But Sunday is always coming. Easter is always coming and we are an Easter people. So no matter how dark the Friday, we have Easter. Jesus has finished the purposes of God. So I want to invite our worship team to come up as we, uh, as we sing, as we continue to worship. And I want you to just reflect on this fact that it has been completed, it is finished. And that in Christ, he can complete you. He can make you holy. He can make you one. Again, I don't know where you've been this week, but as we sing, I'm going to open the altar. If you'd like to come and kneel in prayer, you're, you're welcome to come and pray. But, but let me pray over us this morning. Heavenly Father, I just, I thank you so much for this holy Friday. And I reflect on the fact that I am not worthy. I reflect on the fact that so often I get so distracted by the concerns around me and so often I fail and so often I, I struggle. And, and so many of us, God, we, we think we have to get our act together before you'll take us in. But you say, I'll take you in now, all messed up. And then we'll work on this together. Thank you for your grace upon grace. Thank you that you search us out before we search you out. So I come even now, Holy Spirit, you've been present all morning. You have been present in our worship, in our singing, in our prayers, in our sacrament, in the baptism, in your healing grace as we prayed over those for healing. And even now in this moment, others need to respond to that grace. Others need to humble themselves come forward and kneel in prayer and offer it again to you. Some need to come this morning and repent because they are openly rebelling against you. Lord, I pray that you would break that rebellion, that even now, Holy Spirit, you would soften those hearts. Hmm. Holy Spirit, even now, would you soften those hearts that are in open rebellion. Lord, I pray continually that you would begin your healing 
and continue to heal. I pray, oh God, that you would help remind us that all of us in Christ are Easter people. It might be Friday, but Sunday is coming. And that we live in that hope that it has been completed, it has been finished, and we no longer have to fear. No matter what the world throws at us, may we live in that hope and live in that joy every day, every day. In Jesus' name.